0: That language describes their role in the world. They were to be bearers of good news. They were to, they, so, so really instead of elect and non-elect, what you have in the Bible is the elect and then those to whom the elect are sent. Hey everybody, Mike here. Welcome to the show. So glad you're tuning in. Um, flying solo today neither my son Seth uh, nor Kevin number two were available this morning and so I've been saving up um, a question that I got asked several months ago um, I'd done an interview on sky Jatani's podcast the Holy post on uh, the idea of predestination got a uh, got several emails from that and uh, the, and and so uh, what I wanted to do today was to just talk about predestination. The the, the biggest question is, I uh, got, hey, Mike, uh, what's your view on predestination? And um, I, I, I think that this is a fairly significant topic. Um, for, we talked about convictions and beliefs and opinions last time. This for sure is not a conviction level issue. In other words, I'm not going to break fellowship with people. Uh, with whom I disagree about how this works. For me, this is belief level. I used to come, uh, I used to believe in uh, uh, the Calvinistic understanding of predestination. Um, I've come to see that I think that is really tragically wrong. Um, But I know many Jesus loving good people who hold it. So, and I'm certainly not the smartest cat in the room. So it is with a bit of humility, but always with some enthusiasm That I want to present to you kind of five different ways or five different thoughts about how scripture uses predestination or what I'm going to refer to as election language. So election language talks about God's choosing of his people. Um, and, and there are all kinds of different words. Predestination is one of the concepts and words used, but you have uh, choosing language and adopting language, and you have so so election for me is a, a slightly bigger category than um, than just the predestination category. Uh, for a lot of people, uh, this uh, whole idea of predestination is very troublesome. Um, in, in some of and some of the ways it's presented, it, it sounds very much like God simply chooses some people to be saved, and He overlooks others. In its worst form, I've, I've I've heard double predestination taught, where it's not just that God selects some people to go to heaven after they die, but that God selects people to go to hell too. It's not just that He selects some and overlooks the others. It's that no, no, no. He actually selects people to go to hell uh, and be eternally, consciously tormented forever, and uh, and so uh, I, I, for me, this this is a higher level belief issue. Uh, I really do think this um, uh, impacts how you see God, and uh, and so uh, I have to oversimplify a whole a whole heck of a lot. I mean it's ridiculous how much I have to oversimplify this. And so I can't give all the nuances and of course reformed my reformed brothers and sisters are gonna have critiques of this and I'd have critiques of those critiques and we could spend hours doing this and uh but but I you know that doesn't mean that I don't think there's um a winner in the debate. I, I do think um that uh on the basis of a, a long, long 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 time of study um that the scripture doesn't teach the predestination of individuals to heaven or hell. I just am convinced of that. Um, but again, wouldn't at all break fellowship with folks that would disagree. So um five five sort of thoughts about how election language is used in the scriptures, all right, and again, uh, way oversimplified. I got it, I got it, and I'm and none of this is original to me, of course. I mean, this is NT Wright, this is my new favorite, Tim Gombas, uh, Scott McKnight, John Lundy, um, has written some stuff on this. So, so I, you know, I can't claim in any way, shape, or form that this is original thinking. In fact, I'll just be quoting a couple of times people just reading directly from their work. Um, So if you're impressed with any of this, please understand. I had nothing to do with it except found it, was convinced by it, and share it with you. All right. So uh, predestination. Uh, Five observations about how election language is used in the Bible. All right. First, and this is super important, God's election language, his predestination language, is used only to describe uh, God's people. It's never used to describe the people that aren't God's people. So, you know, uh, in Ephesians, God will talk about, you know, adopting us and choosing us. I mean, it's this incredible picture of God setting his affection upon us before the foundation of the world. Before we did anything, God's affection was uh, toward us. He was for us. He loved us. He was pursuing us. Hallelujah. So, so Gombas, Tim Gombas says election talk is God's love language. So, so like the, the best example of this is when um, God gathers the people of Israel, Mount Sinai, and he says, out of all the nations of the world, you are my treasured possession. Uh, Ephesians one is it's chock full of election language. Um, and it's all affectionate language. It's, it's God's love language towards his people, but a very important ca- uh, corollary to this is that when God speaks of people who are not yet his people, he does not use predestination or election language. So you cannot, in my view, you cannot talk about God predestining anybody towards non-salvation or towards hell or damnation or whatever, uh, because that's not the way election language is used. When we talk about election language, um, God uses one set of language to describe his people and his affection for his people. But he uses a different set of language when he's describing the people who are not god's people, and um so so an example Gombas, uh Tim Gombes gives, which I think is really, really beautiful. Uh, and I'll just claim that it's mine and use it as mine. But but when I talk about my wife, I don't I talk like my wife fits into different categories that no one else fits into. Right. My wife is my soulmate. She's my companion. She's my part, my life partner. She's my lover. I mean, all of those things are uniquely built into the idea of my wife, right? So, so when I, when I talk about my wife, I'm using categories and language that's uniquely reserved for her. When I talk about other women that are not my wife, I don't use language that says, oh, well, she's not wife. (laughs) This other person's not wife. It's not like there are two categories of wife and then everyone else who's not a wife. No, no, no. I just use a different set of categories. So I talk about my sisters. I talk about my friends. I talk about family. um, I talk about acquaintances, right? I can talk about women uh, using all of those terms. Uh, but I don't look at them as non-wife, right? That's not the primary way I identify them as wife and then non-wife. In the same way, what we're arguing is you don't look around and you see the elect and the non-elect. That's not how the language of election works in the Bible. God's uh, election language is used about his affection for his people, but that's saying nothing about his affection for the people who aren't part of his people yet. And, and there are times when God uses very beautiful language to describe the people uh, that uh, to whom the elect are sent um, to show God's love. and then there are other times when the the folks that are not a part of God's people yet are described as God's enemies or objects of wrath or or very negative terms but but never is is election language used to describe them. So what we can't say is that God has elected some to salvation and elected some to damnation. That's not how election language, Works Not even close. All right. Um, Secondly, election language is used to describe in in the scriptures and certainly in in the um, literature around the life of Jesus. Election language was really used to describe and debates around election were used, um, were held around. How do you know if somebody is part of God's true people versus how do you know if they're not? And so, um, a, a lot of the Jewish groups around Jesus's day, and you see this in like first Maccabees or, um, let's see, uh, Jubilees or, uh, other like apocryphal literature of Jesus's day, the, the, big debates weren't had, well, does God choose someone not others? No, no, no. It's how do you recognize someone who's truly part of God's true people? And, and there were all kinds of lists and boundaries, some were dietary, some were the festival calendar, some were avoiding corruption of Jerusalem, some were ritual purity and bathing. I mean, there were all sorts of things, but the debates were not had about how God saves people and whether or not he's arbitrary. It's rather, how do you recognize the people who are really saved? And that is is the debate that was had around election. It wasn't the does God choose some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell? No, no, it was an entirely different discussion altogether. How do you know, recognize if someone is one of, uh, one of God's true people. And there were all sorts of debates about that. Now, when we get to Christians in the new Testament, of course, um, we're, we're, we're united and formed in Christ. And so the idea is that we're, our election isn't into Israel, but it's now into Christ. And, and that, that idea, which Paul refers to, I think 165 times, that is, that is our election. And so because we are in Christ, what's true of Christ is, uh, by nature is now true of us by grace. So Paul can say things like, "Yeah, we've risen with Christ. We died with Christ. Um, we've ascended and we rule with Christ." I mean, he can say all of those things. But but what's not being said is that uh, that those in Christ were predestined to be there. And that those not in Christ were predestined to be not in Christ. That's not the language at all that's being used. Um, and, and the debates ar- around this idea in the first century all had to do with, well, how do you recognize the true people of God? And and Paul will introduce an idea that, you know, is, is used in the Old Testament sparingly, but it's the idea of being circumcised um, in your heart circumcision of the heart. Circumcision obviously was a Jewish rite. It was part of the way that an ethnic group marked itself out for God's purposes. But it is very very clear very early in the story that just because you were part of the ethnic tribe of Israel that you were not always considered automatically to be a true child of Abraham. And so John the Baptist shows up and that's the big point he starts with is not all of Israel is in Israel. Just because you're ethnically Israel doesn't mean that you're superior, all right? So a big, big point to start with. So first point, how election language is used referring to God's people, not referring to other people. Um, the Jewish debates around election weren't about how God ch- saves individuals, but rather how do you recognize the true people of God? thirdly and and just as significantly election language is always used to describe mission what that means is that never are god's people saved just to be saved and enjoy the blessings of their salvation themselves salvation is always for something else israel was not elected and 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 it's so clear Um, In Deuteronomy, they were not elected because they were the most religious people, the biggest people, the most military, strongest people. No, 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 not at all. They were elected because God put his affection upon them. And that's the end of the story. And their election, however, and this was true of Abraham. Right in Genesis 12, you are, you are blessed to be a blessing. Your election isn't for you. Your election is for the sake of the nations. Election is never, ever, ever to privilege you. Election is to call you into service. That's the idea. So when God says in Exodus 19, again, they're at Mount Sinai, he says, out of all the nations of the world, you are my treasured possession. And then he gives them a job description. You are to be a holy nation and a royal priesthood. And that language describes their role in the world. They were to be bearers of good news. They were to, they, so, so really instead of elect and non-elect, what you have in the Bible is the elect and then those to whom the elect are sent. Right. I mean, Jonah is a great example of this. And, and Jonah was sent to Nineveh to uh, proclaim and prophesy about Yahweh. and and uh, the only time God gets, you know, election language becomes a double-edged sword is when the elect forget that their election isn't just for themselves. And, and, and in the Old Testament, God will set aside the, his instruments um, if they begin to become obstacles to God's nation to redeem the, uh, God's, uh, God's mission to redeem the nations. He will set them aside. And Jonah in microcosm is a parallel of where Israel found itself. When Messiah Jesus showed up, that election was for them superiority. Election was for them privilege. Election was for them, uh, the beneficiaries, and they were, they were better than the nations. And so God simply sets them aside um, and works within Israel to find a remnant who are humble in heart and poor in spirit to now be salt and light to the nation. So uh, election language is used of mission and service. It's never used a privilege Um, and, uh, and, you know, us benefiting alone, uh, fourthly, and and this, this is a really big one. (laughs) This is the most important one. When Paul talks about Jews, uh, when he talks about election language, particularly in Ephesians one and two, and particularly in Romans, uh, nine through 11, Paul is talking about Jews and Gentiles. He's not talking about the salvation of individuals. He's not talking about believers and unbelievers. He, he's not talking about that at all. He's talking about believing Jews and non-believing Jews. He's talking about how Jewish followers of Jesus fit in with non-Jewish followers of Jesus and how Jewish to those non-Jewish followers ha- of Jesus have to be b- before they're considered truly the people of God. These were massive, massive questions in the first century church. I mean, think about it. If you were Jewish, you were raised from your earliest memories, understanding that you were God's chosen people in the way that you dressed, in the way that you combed your hair and what you wore and the way that you ate and the way that you washed your dishes and the way that you kept your home and what you would do with your time and the way that you would tithe your agriculture. I mean, everything was designed to remind you of your unique place in God's sight and among the nations. Absolutely. And of course, it would be, it would be uh, more than easy to simply forget that that election was for service and to be given that you were special simply because you were Jewish. And, um, and, and so when you have Jesus showing up, And Jesus is Messiah being rejected by the formal leadership of Israel. And now, you know, when, when books like Romans and Ephesians were being written, you have lots of non-Jewish followers of Jesus flooding into these churches. How in the world do you put all of that together? I mean, it's nothing to us, but to them, uh, to Jewish followers of Jesus, this was the most important question. Had God Has God failed? Has God's mission failed? Has Israel failed? I mean, what in the world? And Paul is so clear. I mean, he grieves over Israel's unbelief in Romans 9. But anytime, and he gets into talking about vessels prepared for destruction, and and I will harden whom I harden, and I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, he gets into all this crazy stuff. And if you just yank that stuff out of context, sure. Sure. You're, you can make a compelling case in English that what he's talking about there is, well, I'm God, you're the potter, I'm, or I'm the potter, you're the clay, and I can do whatever I want. And, um, and certainly yanking out of context can facilitate that view. But what Paul is talking about, and you cannot forget this, you cannot forget this at all. Paul is deliberately talking about nations, Even when he talks about God choosing Jacob over Esau in Genesis, it's so clear. He's talking about nations. Two nations are in the womb. um, The writer of Genesis says when we're talking about Jacob and Esau. So even Pharaoh, right? I mean, so there are two, there are two, and and I'll get into this just a little bit. It's super confusing. And I I worry that getting into it a little bit will make it even more murky. Um, what you have, like in Romans, let's just look at Romans, you have evidently some sort of dispute between the Jewish Christians and the non-Jewish Christians, where the Jewish Christians are claiming that their Jewishness privileges them in the Jesus movement in some way, shape, or form. And so what Paul does is in one, in Romans chapters one, two, and three, he establishes The universal need, Jewish and non-Jewish, universal need for salvation. Um, That we are all sinners, we all alike have fallen short. And then, um, kind of in the middle of chapter 4, he begins to proclaim something called the righteousness of faith. That Jews, both Jews, and it's always been this way, and non-Jews can now be made right with God by faith. Now that's always been true, and Paul gets into an argument involving Abraham to show that this is true. It's always been by faith that God has saved us, not the works of the law. But now he's arguing uh, and making it very, very clear that listen, if we're alike, uh, equally alike condemned before the law, we're equally saved in the same way. um, And we are saved by faith. And that opens up the possibility of non-Jewish people, not having to go through Judaism to find Jesus. Now, again, that sounds like nothing to us. This was absolutely revolutionary. And the question became, well, why, why has God set apart Israel? Why has he set them aside? Is there a future for them? And that is a whole separate question. We'll get into when we hit eschatology. That's, that's a huge one. But for now, we simply want to say that, no, no, no. What God has done has been to set aside Israel because of Israel's unbelief and hard heartedness that Israel itself has become a stumbling block and an obstacle to the mission of God to redeem the nations. And so God is now moving, um, outside of the boundaries of ethnic Israel to redeem. And he always has been, but now it's much more explicit through in and through this Jesus. And now, uh, he's going to argue that the failure of Israel to embrace Jesus does not constitute a failure of God, nor does it constitute a failure of God's mission to redeem the nations. He's simply going to say he's, he's going to be operating according to two different logics in the, this text. The logic of election is God chooses and elects and blesses before we've done anything. Jacob and Esau, before they were born. Right. Esau was chosen or Jacob was chosen over Esau. Um, and then the second form of logic is the logic of hardening. Paul's now going to introduce the concept that God hardens people. And uh, it, it's, it's, super, it's super important that we understand uh, hardening. The, the idea is that he, he begins to talk about Pharaoh. Now he's talking about Israel's unbelief. Right. Whether it's a failure, uh, but he's going to go to, he's going to go to, to, so he's used Jacob and Esau as an example of election, the logic and dynamic of election. Now he's going to Pharaoh as an example of the logic of hardening. All right. Now, oh, this is so, I'm, I'm actually going to read some quotes here. Um, Let's see. God's hardening works differently than his showing mercy. Whereas God chooses to show mercy prior to any human action. All right. This is a huge point. God's hardening. And listen to this. Is his confirming a person in their already decided upon rejection of God for the purposes of God's universal saving mission. So the idea is they've already. So if you look at Pharaoh, there are 10 times it says Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then it begins to be interjected that God has hardened Pharaoh's heart. So the hardening came when Pharaoh began to harden his heart. Right? Romans one talks about God giving us over to the things that 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 we are embracing. It's it's simply uh, as as this author says it's the con- it's the confirming of a person in their already decided upon rejection of God. And the reason they're hardened that way is so that they can be set aside and not prove to be an obstacle or stumbling block to God's mission to save the nations. All right, so, in this passage, when we're talking about Romans nine, um election refers to God's saving uh prior to anything a person or a nation does, right? Boom. He sets his love upon a nation or person before time um, and commits himself to saving them apart from anything they might present to God. Right. There's no superiority. This is super important in Paul's argument saying that Jews just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you're superior. Now, election does not refer to God's treatment of Pharaoh or unbelieving Israel. Right. Unlike mercy, hardening happens subsequently. To uh, Pharaoh's hardening his heart against God. Pharaoh chose to become an obstacle to God's redemption of Israel. And so, and so God was committed to saving this undeserving nation that he hardened Pharaoh in his rejection in order to save Israel. That's the logic that's being presented here. God is so committed to his program of reclaiming the nations that when when either Pharaoh or even Israel becomes an obstacle to that, God reserves the right to harden them and they're already decided upon course. Now we can get into all sorts of questions, but that's what Paul's saying. This, he's not talking about, he's not talking about individuals. He's talking about, Nations and how do Jews and Gentiles relate? and how, particularly in this instance, does believing Israel relate to non-believing Israel? Um, now, no, there, there is a particular question that comes from this line of, of thinking about, well what about the vessels of wrath? God prepared some um, for vessels of wrath and um, God hardens, He has mercy on whom He has mercy. And he hardens whoever he wants to harden, um, so so we need to understand and, and then and, and then, of course, then uh, Paul entertains the objection, hey isn 't it unjust that uh, isn 't it unjust of God to show mercy to whom He desires and to harden others? How can God hold Israel responsible if God is hardening them and their unbelief and um, Paul could have said hey, God isn't predestined you for unbelief. God only hardens Pharaoh and Israel in response to their decisions to become obstacles to God's redemptive aims. Instead, though, he could have made that argument because it's totally consistent with what he said. But instead, what Paul says is that rather than doing that, God, as creator, has rights to do with his creation as he pleases. And he uses the potter and the clay metaphor. Um, The vessels of wrath... Uh, comment doesn't refer to God predestining people to go to hell. It refers specifically to Jews who have rejected God's work in Jesus and have become enemies of the gospel, and therefore must be set aside, in order to the work of in order to the work of God, in order for the work of God to progress. Uh, and there's a there's a really complicated exegetical argument that goes into that. I am going to skip that. Doggone it. The big point I want you to understand. Go back and read uh, um, uh, Genesis 9, 10, 11, uh, and see if this teaches uh, about what ha- with the destinies of individuals after they die. Uh, it, it is not even close to that. It is such an abuse of that passage to make that passage talk about that that God is sovereignly choosing the salvific destinations of people, that is so not it. He's talking about how Jews, Gentiles, but particularly how Jews and unbelieving Jews relate and how it fits into God's plan. And then he gets, he goes into the future of Israel, which again is its own big issue. The last, the last big point around election, and I do hope this has in some way or shape or form been clear, is that God's election is almost always counterintuitive um in in Jacob and Esau's case uh Jacob's the younger Esau's the older right Esau um should be the one being served by the younger but instead God chooses the younger with Joseph and his family God chooses the younger Paul even says in to the Corinthians listen not many of you were awesome when you were chosen Uh, Not many of you were of noble birth. He chose, he chooses the weak things to shame the strong. He chooses the things that aren't much to shame those things that think they are a lot. God is, God has this reverse logic of um, counterintuitiveness. He could have chosen the Persian empire or the Assyrian empire or the Akkadian empire, but instead he chooses Israel. Uh, This tiny little nation and instead of putting them, you know, and giving them massive amounts of land and territory, he gives them this little bitty bit of some of the most strategic land in the whole world. Um, I mean, it's just absolutely, it's absolutely beautiful. Um, Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to choose you guys. You're not young. You can't have children and you're too old to have children. Uh, I will give you a child. I mean, it's just this beautiful picture. It is God's initiative. It is God's purposes and God's plan. And so um, I could sum this up by using an analogy I used with Sky that I heard uh, from another teacher. And, And the analogy is simply this. When we're talking about Jews and Gentiles, when we're talking about uh, all of these big categories of people, the idea is predestination is true, of course. That all of those in Christ are predestined to share in the blessings of being in Christ. That all of those who are... um, Uh, chosen to be in Israel were in Israel. It's kind of like, and and for those who chose not to be in Israel, they were predestined not to be in Israel. And and what I mean by that is this, suppose I get on a Southwest flight uh, from Columbus to Orange County, even though there's not one direct, let's pretend there's one that's direct. That would be wonderful Southwest. If you're listening to this, let's do a direct one from Orange County um, uh, to Columbus and back. Now, the, the destination of that flight is predestined. There's nothing I can do to influence. Once I'm on that plane, we are going to Orange County, right? The pilot is sovereign. The flight plan is sovereign. There is not a darn thing I can do once I'm on the plane to adjust where the plane's going. But I certainly do have a choice about whether or not to get on the flight. And that's why I think you could teach both predestination, that those in Christ are predestined, right, for every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, and that those who are not in Christ, they are they they are destined for destruction. I mean, that's where the trains are going. That's that's where the airplanes are headed, right? I mean, you can't get on the in Christ train and not be declared, you know, risen with Christ and and you've died with Christ and your identity's in Christ. And you can't, you know, um, choose to not get on the Jesus train and then um, and then you know. Uh, when you, when Jesus talks about the broad, you know, way that leads to destruction. Now, uh, that's where that sucker's going. So there are two roads, one road's going this way, one road's going that way. You can't change once you're on the road where the road goes, but you certainly have a choice about which road you're on. Uh, that's how I kind of put all of this together. Now I realize even sending this out today, I mean, I'm just, I hate myself because there's so much more to say, and I've probably raised more questions than I've answered. Um, and of course there are objections to this. So, but I feel like, it, I feel like it's important for for people to understand that there, I think is a much more biblical way of understanding these topics than just the God is choosing people, individuals for heaven or hell. I just don't think that's the way that it works. And so to that end, I hope this has been helpful And uh, again, hello at uh, voxpodcast.com is where you can email in questions. uh, Voxpodcast.com is our website. And then um, you can find us all over social media. So thank you, my brothers and sisters. Uh, I hope this has been helpful. And I'm so privileged, as always, to be a part of uh, wherever you are on the journey. So until next time, my friends, thank you.